I'm Dr. Jonathan Epstein, the Chief Scientific Officer at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. I like that little bit of pizzazz at the end. That's great. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell, and thanks for watching and listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast. Dr. Jonathan Epstein is one of the most important people in our region when it comes to COVID-19 research. He is a chief scientific officer at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where they're trying to crack this coronavirus thing. Why does it do what it does? Why does it do what it does to us? How are we going to get our lives back? Dr. Epstein paints a perfect picture when it comes to where we're at right now and where we might be going next year. Plus, he also shares some frustrations about how this has become so political. Dr. Epstein, right now on the True Philadelphia Podcast. Dr. Epstein, thanks for joining us here on the True Philadelphia Podcast. I know you're really busy over there at the University of Pennsylvania. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Susan Weiss, who has been researching coronaviruses at Penn for several decades now. It was a great conversation with her. I know over there you've been studying how doctors can better care for patients during a pandemic, the effectiveness of COVID-19 treatments, the toll on children's mental health, contact tracing. You're getting the idea there's a lot going on over there. If you could just give us a piece here or there of what you've seen happen at the Perlman School, that should give us hope to get to an end of this. Well, I'd be delighted. Uh, as you say, there's an awful lot uh, going on. And uh, despite the fact that back in March when this began, like everybody else, we had to depopulate our buildings and have people work remotely. Uh, over the ensuing months, uh, a lot of research has come back on track albeit in a new normal sort of way, with everybody uh, um, wearing masks and washing their hands and keeping a safe distance. In fact, we've been able to operate with thousands of people in and out of the research buildings with only 25 positive cases since March in those buildings and no clusters of cases. And that's because everybody's following the rules very carefully and we're enforcing those rules. And those rules work. Wearing your mask works and keeping your distance from others. So we've been investigating in a couple of major areas, uh, trying to advance better testing, trying to understand the immune response, as you indicated, why some people don't even get sick when they get infected, but other people end up in the intensive care unit. We've been working hard on coming up with new therapeutic agents, new medicines, especially those that are already in the pharmacy that might just be redirected to have a beneficial effect in this disease. And we've been playing a major role in vaccine development. Several of the leading vaccine candidates uh, are derived from work performed at Penn. And we continue to work with the companies to uh, test those in clinical trials and to improve them along the way. So I'm happy to give some examples of each of those if, uh, if you're interested. Tell me this, of all the mysteries that remain with the coronavirus, COVID-19, what's the one that you would like to crack the most? I think understanding why it makes some people sick and not others. Because the people who aren't getting sick, their immune system is doing something right. And if we could understand that by studying the people who don't get so sick, we might be able to tweak the immune system of those who do get sick to be more like those who don't get sick. 
So to me, that's the biggest mystery. Why such a big difference in how people are affected? What's been the most surprising thing you've learned so far since, say, February, when the cases started emerging? Well, uh, it's not uh, scientific. Um, uh, the most surprising thing I've learned is how difficult it is to communicate with uh, people about what they can do to make a difference and uh, how politics has gotten in the way of common sense. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I did want to talk to you about this pandemic fatigue. I think it's really set in for a lot of people and it may be the reason why we're seeing cases rise not only in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, but in other states across the country. As, let's say, a national collective right now, what is our pandemic mood? Well, I think you're right. There is uh, fatigue. Who would have thought back in March that it would be going on this long? Although I have to tell you, I keep seeing in my mind's eye the graphs of the 1918-1919 flu epidemic, which went on this long and longer. And the biggest spike during that pandemic was in the fall of 1918, the equivalent to the period that we're entering right now. So we do need to keep our guard up. Uh, this is still going to go on for a little while. But uh, I, the mood that I see is reflected in the environment in which I live. And uh, I see that COVID fatigue in healthcare workers and uh, those who've been literally risking their lives to take care of the sick uh, and operating on difficult conditions uh, with all the stresses of their own families and childcare and commuting safely, they're getting tired too. And the strain and stress is having its effect on people's mental health and people just being a little quicker to get angry, uh, to uh, uh, have some arguments with one another, uh, and, and I think we just have to be understanding for that. It's a tough time for everybody. You know well that the last four or five pandemics our country has experienced have had that second wave, and it typically is as bad as the first, if not worse. And then there's sometimes a third wave. And a lot of people bring up the 1918 pandemic as the best analogy that we have right now, given that it's you know, within the last 100 years. What does that information tell you about this pandemic? Well, I think it tells us that we uh, uh, need to uh, be vigilant and uh, that we can't expect that when a one peak ends, that that's the end of it. These things do come in waves and we have to uh, expect that there will be additional waves until we can get better therapeutics and get everybody or the vast majority of people vaccinated. Um, on the other hand, every contagious disease is a little different. And each one has its own quirks and spreads in its own ways. And so at the same time, we can't expect it to be exactly like any of the previous pandemics. It, the, the mysteries will continue to unfold. We see with the seasonal flu, it tends to do better in the wintertime. And there's a variety of reasons, mainly because people spend more time indoors and so that they are able to transmit the disease easier. And it also sometimes has to do with moisture in the air. Uh, there's less of it in the wintertime. Uh, what have you found with the COVID-19 as it uh, has to do with that? Well, you know, there was a lot of hope uh, early on that the hot weather in the summer would limit the spread. And uh, um, uh, in fact, we, we saw continued cases through July at a peak and late July 
uh, uh, that seemed to ease up a little bit after that. If you look worldwide, this uh, uh, infection doesn't seem to be uh, dramatically affected by uh, uh, temperature and weather. But I do expect in this country, as more people are inside in the colder weather, spread will increase uh, during that time. So uh, uh, I am worried as the temperature cools in many parts of the country that, that it's not going to help us in slowing the spread of this uh, infection. There are several ways out of the pandemic. One is to just eliminate all cases and maybe have a massive quarantine that the world has never seen before. We can develop an effective vaccine or vaccines. We can allow the virus to work its way through the population and achieve herd immunity. What's the best and the worst way to get out of this? Well, you know, even the way you pose that question uh, reflects, I think, a common uh, sense that we only have two choices. It's either close everything down or else uh, come up with a cure and, and work through it. But I think actually it's subtly different than that the way I think about it. I think the original uh, uh, trying to close down all the businesses was to give us time to come up with the tools we need to operate safely. And I think to a large extent, we've done that. We've learned a lot about how the virus transmits. We've learned how to conduct ourselves in a way that can be safe. And we've built testing capacity, though not as much as I'd like to see, uh, that helps us in tracking the virus. So I don't favor additional shutdowns, even as we see cases rise. I think uh, instead, we have to be even more vigilant about how we continue to operate safely. And again, I, I mentioned the fact that we've been able to operate safely in the Perlman School of Medicine with thousands of people doing their job, albeit now in shifts, more people doing it remotely, uh, wearing masks, washing our hands. And in the hospital, we've been tracking thousands of healthcare workers, testing their serologies, their antibody tests, to see if they've been exposed to the virus. And before we had good procedures in place, a lot of healthcare workers were getting sick, as he read about, and, and some of them very sick. But since we put good procedures in place, wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera, um, very few have turned positive uh, over that time, despite the fact they keep working with ill people. So uh, I think the lessons that we've learned are that we can operate our economy. We can operate our communities in a way that can be productive. It's not as fun as it used to be. You can't go out to dinner and sit as close to your colleagues and sing songs with them. But we can get our work done, and it's not a dichotomous decision. I guess what you're saying is we have a large toolbox, and some people don't realize all the options that we have in, at hand. I think that's right. And I think we're not um, socializing and taking full advantage of those options uh, to, to the best of our abilities. You've said that all viruses are very different. Uh, you have the let's say the polio virus we have a vaccine for that but there is no treatment if you get it and then there's the treatments that we have for hiv but no vaccine for that a lot of people in the medical community are extremely optimistic that we will achieve a vaccine for covid 19 and we already have seen some treatments may be effective what are your hopes for this well it's a really good question uh, you know, in my role overseeing uh, the broad research en enterprise at Penn, uh, I would never want to put all my eggs in one basket. And uh, I think that there are multiple ways to beat this thing. One is an effective vaccine. 
Another would be a drug or a set, a combination of medicines that make it a tolerable infection, not so bad. And effectively, that's what's happened with HIV. Uh, it's not perfect, but the medicines are pretty darn good and people can live with it in a way that you might not have imagined when the, uh, that epidemic first came upon us, when I was training as a physician, it was pretty much a deadly disease. So medicines have, have made that very different. So, you know, at Penn, we're both trying to find new medicines that would make it not so bad and uh, vaccines. My own feeling is that the vaccines will probably be effective. Um, HIV is different. It infects the immune cells themselves. And in that way is pretty smart about getting around vaccine attempts. Um, this virus is, is, doesn't act that way. And I think we probably should be able to have an effective vaccine and all the preliminary data suggests that you, that there's at least short-term uh, um, uh, immunity, at least partial immunity that will come from the vaccine. So I'm hopeful about the vaccines. One of the other great mysteries about this virus is reinfection. And we know that there is at least one confirmed case of someone getting COVID-19, recovering and getting it again. What do you know about reinfection? Well, there are several confirmed cases now, uh, in fact, and, and the way you confirm that is to actually sequence the virus that infects a person. If they get better and then get infected again, sequence the virus again. And if it's changed enough that can't be explained just by random mutation, it must have been a reinfection. So you have to have pretty good samples from those individuals over time. But that has now been confirmed in several cases. So clearly one can get reinfected, although it appears to be very rare. I think a, a, another aspect of your question is whether any of the treatments that we're coming up with might change the rate of reinfection. For instance, the antibody treatments that the president got from Regeneron, um, if you give somebody so-called passive immunity, give them antibodies very early in their infection, maybe you'll block them from getting sick, but you might also block them from mounting their own immune response. And then they might be susceptible to reinfection. So this question of whether somebody can be reinfected and how our treatments might affect their chance of getting reinfected are very important and active questions right now. A lot of viruses mutate. They get smarter, they attack, it gets worse. This one doesn't seem to mutate all that much. Why is that? Well, it's an intrinsic property of the RNA itself. And I, I wouldn't say the viruses are, are smart or stupid. They, they are what they are, and they mutate at the rate that science and chemistry tells them uh, to mutate. Um, uh, we don't fully know the rate at which this virus mutates at, at this time. There have been limited studies on that, actually. And I heard just today some data that suggested that maybe it mutates a little bit faster than we had previously been assuming. Still not as fast as the common flu, but maybe a little faster. And actually, I think that uh, we, as more and more people in the world have it, there's a larger population of virus to be mutating and more of a chance that a rare mutation will uh, give the virus a survival benefit, if you will. So it might take over. And we need to be watching that. We need to be sequencing as we are in Philadelphia. We are constantly monitoring the virus that's present here in the city to look for mutations. Not only mutations that might make it more infectious, or hopefully less infectious, that would be good, but maybe mutations that would change the landing spots 
for the testing that we do. And, and we might, you know, primers sit down on the sequence to amplify the sequence to tell you if you uh, have the infection or not. And if the virus mutates so that our test isn't accurate, then that's going to lead to trouble too. So we're constantly looking at the virus in our community here to make sure that it's not evading our testing capabilities. Dr. Epstein, there's one thing that personally frightens me that I feel a lot of people on the general public don't really think about, and it's what the long-term effects of getting COVID-19 could be. You know the HPV can cause cancer, that's a virus. Influenza has been shown to increase heart attacks and strokes. We know there are some long-termers with COVID-19 who just don't feel right or really are still kind of sick for long periods of time. They have heart and lung damage. What do we not know about the long-term effects of COVID-19? Yeah, Matt, that's a really important question right now. And we actually recently stood up a new clinic at Penn just to focus on chronic effects of, of COVID. You know, we're all so uh, immersed in the uh, presence and the crisis of the present time that it's even hard to think about what the long-term medical effects might be. But at the same time, we're seeing reports that a surprising number of people, even with asymptomatic infection, have imaging scans of their heart that suggest chronic inflammation could be an outcome. And we're seeing people with neurologic side effects of infection, you know, foggy memory and things like that, potential kidney insults. I'm personally worried about the degree of chronic disease we might see in the long term because so many people are getting infected. Even if it's relatively rare, that could still be a lot of people who have a problem. So we're gonna to need to be learning as doctors uh, always do about what new uh, uh, afflictions might be upon us and figuring out how we can treat them as best as we possibly can. But this is something I'm concerned about. Safe to say, if you can avoid getting infected, it's a pretty good idea not to get infected. Well, it's another reason why I think people who say, well, it's not so bad, not that many people who get it die. Uh, it's not the whole picture. And uh, uh, I agree with you, better to avoid getting infected. The world and the nation as a whole have been laboratories where we can observe what happens during a pandemic and we can gather so much data scientifically. Yeah, I know you mentioned how you, you've been kind of confused about people's reaction to you know, true science and, and the easy things we can do like mask wearing. What are some of the things that you've observed that have kind of surprised you and, and maybe have been unexpected? Well, um, I think that the way that the entire scientific community has uh, pivoted to address the crisis um, has su surprised me to some degree. Uh, people who never studied viruses before, people who aren't microbiologists or infectious disease doctors, are suddenly pitching in and coming up with really good ideas. Um, I saw a test the other day that combines, you know, making an electrode like an electrical engineer would make with 3D printing to come up with a test that uh, involves a gadget that plugs into your iPhone. And the combination of different scientist skills from areas that were never focused on viruses before uh, is astounding. And uh, so seeing that kind of grassroots collaboration uh, uh, has been heartening. That's good. Uh, there's a lot of theories as to how the 
this coronavirus jumped into humans, uh, some of the theories are a little too out there to even consider, as you know. What is your best guess as to how this went from bat to maybe perhaps another animal to human? You know, uh, uh, I don't know a whole lot more about that than what we read in the, in the papers. And the, 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 the best data seems to me that it came from the uh, market in Wuhan. Uh, I haven't seen anything credible about coming out of laboratories or other uh, uh, sort of conspiracy theory-like ideas. Uh, but personally, I don't have uh, enough information to, to uh, give you a knowledgeable uh, answer beyond what I read in the papers. Do you think we'll figure that out? Is there enough people out there trying to figure that out? Or is it you know, best to have them try and figure out how to take care of us first? I think it's best first, myself, to figure out how to take care of us uh, first. But they will figure that out. And, and there's been a lot of uh, investigation on it already that, that I know is going on. Um, uh, there are groups that are still you know, working hard on exactly where HIV came from years later and going back into the forests and testing animals and creating a whole sort of family tree of the virus's evolution. And that work surely will go on. And Susan Weiss, who you mentioned, uh, knows a lot about those different uh, strains of coronavirus that have emerged over the years. It's not the first to jump species. It's not terribly surprising that it can jump species from time to time. We've seen that before and we'll see it again in the future. I know you'd be very modest, but you are one of the most powerful people in Philadelphia. We need you. You're so important during this time of this pandemic. And I'm sure that, I'll admit it, I have moments sometimes where I get, I get really down on just how long this has taken and how upsetting things can be. What gets you through those moments, Dr. Epstein? Uh, I think it is definitely the uh, hope and inspiration of the doctors and the scientists who are coming up with these great ideas. I'm lucky enough to get to hear all sorts of new ideas and uh, potential therapies that people are working on every day. In fact, it's hard to sleep because uh, these ideas keep rolling around in my head. And uh, uh, I get to see a snapshot in a window of what I think is coming down uh, the pike soon. So for me, that provides an awful lot of hope. I'll give you just one example. Sure. Um, we're uh, screening in our uh, biosafety level three laboratory, where people are wearing these astronaut suits to protect them from the virus because they're working with a live virus. We're screening thousands of drugs for their ability to kill the virus uh, in a dish. And uh, I get updates on uh, which drugs are showing promise. And uh, uh, some of those first hits that I heard about a couple of months ago are now entering clinical trials uh, at Penn and elsewhere to see if they'll have effects uh, uh, on the disease in people. And so I've been able to follow along and see that advance step by step. Uh, and I'm hopeful that they will have effects and that we'll see them uh, publicly announced, uh, hopefully before too long when the trials are complete. A lot of countries are trying to develop vaccines. Some have different standards than us, obviously. What are your worries about getting into some type of huge competition, not only over which vaccine works best, but also the supply chain to develop these vaccines and to make sure that they're refrigerated properly and they can get to the masses? So, uh, first of all, I think it's really important that we have as many vaccines as possible. 
uh, in part for the reasons that you stated, uh, manufacturing is tough to make enough of any one vaccine to treat everybody in the world, especially in uh, societies and communities where it's needed the most. I think it's possible that the, that the virus could mutate to avoid and get around any one vaccine. So it's good if we have several vaccines that might each work a little differently, give us even greater protection. And I think that the differentiator amongst the different vaccines is likely not to be so much effectiveness. I'm optimistic that many of them will be effective, but it's the rare side effect, the rare toxic uh, downside that vaccines you know, can have uh, uh, that, that could be a problem when you give it to so many people. And any, even if it's very rare, even if a vaccine is saving more lives than it might be causing through a very rare side effect uh, or problems that it could be causing, uh, people will get you know, reluctant to take the vaccine if they hear about a side effect. So I think it's important that we have a lot of vaccines in development so we can pick the one with the absolute fewest side effects and troubles to maintain public confidence. Already, we're gonna have trouble convincing everybody to take it. Um, and, uh, you know, this country's and around the world, there've been a, a, a number of people who, who don't believe in vaccines for reasons I can't understand. But uh, that's gonna be something we're gonna have to face from a social point of view as well. How will we know we've crossed the finish line? What is the medical standard for the end of the pandemic? Well, that's a, uh, another uh, excellent question. I don't think it'll be declared one day uh, that we'll all suddenly say, ah, we got through it, we're over. I think it will gradually fade away. And there'll be, you know, like uh, uh, people often uh, compare it to a wildfire and brush fires and that sort of thing. The, the, the wildfire will slowly eke out and there'll still be little brush fires here and there uh, for, for a period of time, maybe years. Um, but I think it's likely that the combination of therapies, vaccines, and the practices we've talked about, masking, distancing, et cetera, will allow this to ease up uh, within a year. That's my, that's my prediction. So you're saying fall 2021? That's my prediction. Of course, it's a guess, but that's my prediction. It's an educated guess. <laughs> When the next pandemic happens and scientists will tell you it will happen, you know, that's the, world, the way the world is going to be, how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to handle it? I hope better than we've handled it this time. I think I'm disappointed in this country. We, uh, the world's richest country, we have the best science and medicine anywhere, but we didn't pull together in this case and we didn't organize ourselves in this case, to use all of our assets to uh, serve the community as best as we could. And uh, you know, we started this new center at Penn called the Center for Coronavirus and Other Emerging Pathogens because we wanted to position ourselves even now to think about the question you asked. How do we face other emerging pathogens in a way that uh, leads to a better outcome than this? And I think as a society, we need to be retro, you know, uh, uh, thoughtful in the uh, weeks and months following the resolution of this crisis uh, so that we position ourselves and organize ourselves to respond uh, more effectively. I often, at the beginning of this, I often told people that I felt like we were fighting a battle like a bunch of local militias marching into, uh, into war. 
uh, instead of as one organized arm. You've seen how South Korea handled it this time. They had the SARS epidemic uh, many years beforehand. And when this arrived, masks were on immediately and contact tracing started going and they had a much better outcome. That probably gives you hope, given that we're experiencing this now, the next one will have changed attitudes. I hope so. As long as we can convince those people who still don't believe in masks that next time they should put them on quick. You obviously come from the medical side of this. What permanent changes do you foresee having endured this? Well, you know, this is another thing that gives me hope, actually. Um, I think there may be some silver linings that uh, come out of this. Um, I know that I've learned to work much more effectively with my colleagues overseas and on the other side of the country uh, than I ever was able to do before because of the need to have all these Zoom meetings and uh, uh, Blue Jeans and Microsoft Teams and every other uh, app and trick. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, people may be more accommodating to lifestyle needs, taking care of kids, elder care, uh, the need to work remotely when uh, appropriate. That may lead to more flexible lifestyles for all of us. And the type of collaboration I mentioned earlier, where doctors and uh, scientists and uh, across disciplines getting together to solve problems, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, some of the lessons learned from that will persist and people will continue to operate in those very beneficial ways. Despite all the noise with politics and drinking from the fire hose, as they say, I do really believe that we've gained at least a little bit more empathy for one another, don't you? I, I do think so. I really do. And I think appreciation for what uh, others have to go through. Um, uh, I think a broader appreciation for what healthcare workers have to go through uh, in, uh, in their jobs. So we're going to fast forward several decades later and historians are gathering and they're trying to write this chapter of the year 2020. And I'm going to ask you, Dr. Epstein, what the chapter might be called. This country or uh, the whole world? Let's say this country. Uh, how about both? Um, well, I think the pandemic will characterize the, the, uh, this era, that's for sure. Um, I hope that it's called the, uh, uh, the era of uh, scientific revolution. Let's hope that out of this comes discoveries that affect not just coronavirus, but how we treat all sorts of medical diseases. And I think that's possible. I think some of the advances we're seeing in how to tweak the immune system so that we can read the language of the immune system will be applicable to many, many diseases. So maybe we'll call it the era of the immunorevolution. I wanted to call it the lost year, but as I'm talking to you and hearing about all the things going on and hearing your positivity about all this, I think maybe we should call it the reset year. Well, I'm for that. I'll be supportive of that, uh, that name. We'll vote for that one. Dr. Jonathan Epstein, thanks so much for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Dr. Epstein for his time. Good luck with his research. Thanks to you for spending some time with the True Philadelphia podcast. I really appreciate everyone who subscribed, who sends me messages and comments. Keep them coming. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Stay true.